Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest this week is hands down one of the best stand-up comedians working right now. And whatever you do, do not tell him otherwise. Who the fuck reviews comedy? So what the fuck do you know about it? Ever been on stage in your life trying to tell me how to do my job? That's like me going to a maternity ward in a hospital and giving women tips on how to give birth. Yeah, what kind of fucking asshole would go into a maternity ward and just look for women in labor? And just go, hey, you really should be pushing harder during childbirth. You don't look like you're pushing hard enough during childbirth. Well, I think you're relying too much on your ethnic background during childbirth. Oh, the C-section? Oh, that's a real lazy form of childbirth. Two stars. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Ronnie Chang with some harsh words for comedy critics in his latest Netflix special, Speakeasy. Ronnie's confidence is well-deserved. The Malaysian-born, Singapore-raised comedian broke into the American comedy scene in 2015 when Trevor Noah handpicked him to be a correspondent on The Daily Show. Since then, he had a phenomenal debut with his 2019 Netflix special, Asian Comedian Destroys America, and scored key roles in blockbuster movies like Crazy Rich Asians and Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Now he's back on Netflix with Speakeasy, which has instantly become one of my favorite specials of the year, and I am so excited to have him on the podcast this week to share his very strong views about being a comedian in 2022. And if you're in Los Angeles, Ronnie is popping up at multiple shows at this week's massive Netflix is a Joke Festival, including an opening spot for one of his mentors and previous Last Laugh guest Bill Burr at the Hollywood Palladium tomorrow night, May 4th, and a co-headlining show with fellow Daily Show alum Hassan Minhaj at the Troubadour on Friday, May 6th. So let's get into it. Here's me with Ronnie Chang. I really appreciate you doing this because I know you say, I believe in this new special, how much you don't like podcasts. So uh. (laughs) I truly think there's too many. And I think explaining comedy is the death of comedy. That's a great way for us to start. (laughs) Great. But hey, I mean, you know, you've been speaking to me for a long time. I know you get it. So (laughs) I'll make an exception. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, I have to flatter you up top, too, because um, I first have to start with your previous special is probably the the special that I recommend to the most people who just ask me randomly, you know, what's a special that I should watch on Netflix or anywhere, because it's it's just so fucking funny. And it's just really one of my all time favorites. And uh, and this one, I think, is uh, is possibly even better uh, speakeasy. So so thank you for making these specials and, and putting them out there. Well, I mean, thank you for that. Yeah, that's very kind of you to say. Thanks for recommending it. I appreciate it. Did you feel because that that first one that you did on Netflix was was really big and was really successful? Did you feel pressure to kind of top it with this new one? 
not any more pressure than I usually feel with comedy, which is with with comedy you're always you, you know you're only as good as your last gig. So um, with stand up comedy anyway, so um, I think I just the the normal pressure of trying to come up with new material. Um, but uh, there were things that worked for me and worked against me. So I think it balanced out in the sense of like, uh, I was pretty happy with the previous one and I know it found a bit of an audience. Um, so as you said, maybe there's a bit of pressure to kind of live up to the audience, but then there's also the idea that I felt like with the first one, because I had people who liked it, they, I could just kind of be myself and and talk about what I wanted to talk about, and I felt like uh, real fans would get behind it. So I I think it kind of balanced out, you know. Yeah, it's less of an introduction in a way. You always with the first big special, you do kind of have to introduce yourself to a new audience because I think you probably there were a lot of people who probably had never seen you before that first special. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I'm under no delusions. I I, I mean, in terms of people not you know just because you have a special on netflix doesn't mean everybody knows who you are anyway you know i'm under no delusions i i still feel like stand up comedy is a uh, a very fringe art form that most people aren't super familiar with so uh and that's my mentality whenever i do stand up is like most people don't know don't care don't <laughs> like um yeah. Yeah, but I mean it is clearly getting bigger and bigger. I know, you know, we're talking right after your special came out and right before this giant uh festival, the uh, Netflix is a joke fest is about to start um in LA and I know you're you're a part of that in a few different ways. So, is that do you feel like even though it feels, you know, kind of niche in some ways, do you feel like since you've started doing it has it gotten bigger? Have you seen it become a thing that more people are into or just feel like a bigger part of the culture even? Yes, yes and no. Um, uh, I, I truly believe it's a very fringe art form that people like, but um, not everyone likes it. And that's, you know, that's part of it. Um, and, uh, uh, and I do feel like uh, uh, what you're describing, which is more and more people liking it, um, I think there is a sense of that from the numbers that we see, right? Ticket sales and all that and, and number of specials and number of comics. Um, and I think that um, comedy has actually, stand-up comedy specifically has, has kind of found its groove on the internet in a way where I think like five or uh, even five years ago, but let's say 10 years ago, um, we people didn't really know how to put stand-up comedy on the internet, both the stand-up comic creators and the audience. People have figured out how to do it on the internet, so in that sense, it has been getting bigger. Uh, I still think that ultimately it's a very fringe art form so I don't know if I, I don't know if I say that as a coping mechanism as in I'm, <laughs> I'm not upset by that I, I, for me it's like it, we are like we're, we're like in bars yelling at people you know drunk people <laughs> like anything that we get in the mainstream is like a bonus to me you know what I mean so and and that's how I kind of keep my mentality that's how I keep the edginess to Stay it you know, that's how I kind of <laughs> yeah well also that's how I keep from pandering because for me it's like oh it's not for everybody you know it's for it's for these people who get it and even people who get it like they love comedy but they even they might not necessarily know comics right they just go oh yeah I love stand-up you know and which is fine which is fine too you know and so, if you were yeah. trying to write jokes that appeal to everybody they might not be very good jokes uh, it, I mean, in my opinion, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm limited by my own talent to write material. So maybe I, 
I can't write something that appeals to everybody, but I, I feel like the the grip the best comedy is kind of edgy. It's kind of like you know, and and it's an art form, right? It's there's no there's no equation for how far to the line you can go before you cross it, or you know, you just gotta feel it out through ex- by having experience in it. Well, the the Amazon Prime one is is one that is is definitely one of my favorites, and I think is something that nearly everyone can relate to um, having those feelings. Can't get enough Prime here. We need it prime. We need prime harder, faster, stronger. Faster prime. Prime now. Prime now. Two hour delivery. Prime now. Give it to me now. When I press buy, put the item in my hand. Now. In America, there should be no lag. Zero lag between when I press the button and when the item is gently placed into my hand so I can use it now. Oh, same day delivery. Un American. Same day. Now. Prime now. Break into my house. Did, was that something that just came out of your own experience, or how did how did you land on on that uh, whole idea behind the uh, talking about Amazon in that way? Yeah, a lot of stuff was things that make me upset. Usually, for me, become good bits, and so uh, I was just upset by. I continue to be upset by the amount of packaging and environmental pollution that happens in America through consumerism. And <laughs> that was just an expression of it. So, yeah, I mean, usually things that if, if something's making me upset, I'm like, oh, there's there's I'm, I'm experienced enough to know that, oh, there's going to be a decent bit in this if I can figure it out. But, yeah, it definitely seems like that anger, that frustration is a big part of your, your comedy and your persona. Um, do you feel like that is true to who you are in, in real life that those feelings or do you kind of amp it up on stage or how do you think about that yeah i it's it's all coming from an authentic place i mean we all contain multitudes right so is that the person i am 24 7 no but is it something i genuinely feel yeah and i might you know i my comedy is very the way i do jokes is very um personal so it, it has to come from an authentic place. So a lot of that anger usually comes from a real place. So let's talk about your new special, Speakeasy, um, which I really loved. And I just love the whole look and feel and setting of it. Um, so can you talk about how you, how you arrived at that, how you decided to do it the way that you did? Yeah, so uh, a lot of my visual themes for uh, stand-up comedy specials, um, well, my the two Netflix ones I've done have been kind of like... Um, uh, cl- classic American show business has been like the visual theme of it because I, you know, the reason I'm in America is because I'm a fan of American show business. I've been since I was a kid. I remember watching all these, you know, Johnny Carson, everything. So, so for me, the the, the Rat Pack, um, and so for me, I was trying to. This is my. But when when I saw those things, I I I love them. I love the the aesthetic of it, but I never saw like a. Asian 
performer in those settings. So for me, when I do these things, it's kind of my way of putting myself into my dreams and putting myself into that setting. And so I, I kind of put myself into this classic American showbiz setting. And um, uh, my idea for this one was uh, I wanted to do the Coco Cabana in Goodfellas. I thought that would be a really cool um, vibe. And um, just believe it or not, hot, it's almost impossible to do. Um, the Coca Cabana closed down during the pandemic. I mean, it might be open again now, but it was closed when we were trying to film this. So we couldn't actually get this iconic New York venue. Did you consider doing it, doing it there? Yeah, I did. I, if we could have gone there, I probably would have done it there, you know. Um, just to get something, uh, you know, this special, I want it to be very New York. I want it to kind of capture the pandemic moment um, visually without being explicit about it. You know, not necessarily, not necessarily masks or whatever, but just the idea that comedy is kind of you know, gathering in a small room is kind of illegal now. And is this Under, you know, underground speakeasy? Yeah. yeah. Underground speakeasy for comedy is what my idea was. Cause during the pandemic, we were doing comedy on rooftops. We were doing comedy in parks and people came out for it. You know, as, as much as, as much as I say, uh, it's a fringe act, which when I say people came out, I mean, you know, like we were on rooftops, like small groups of people, but, um, people wanted it, you know? And so I was trying to capture that kind of moment. Uh, in time, just visually, that people wanting to come out to listen to comedy, even though it's risking our lives, literally, in these small rooms. Um, so, yeah, and, that, and then it ended up be kind, being kind of, because I didn't want to do, I wanted to put some Chinese elements in it. And so it kind of ended up looking almost very Wong Kar Wai like instead of purely Goodfellas, which I appreciate it because I didn't want to do I didn't want to do a parody of Goodfellas, right? I, I was trying to capture some aesthetic there. So I'm glad we kind of made it our own. You know, it wasn't just like a it wasn't just like a like a, 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 a like a copying. A re- yeah, recreation yeah. or yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a shot for shot recreation. It was kinda of like we took those ideas and we kinda of made it our own, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned doing it during COVID and wanting that to be a part of it. And it's not a huge part of your material, but you do have some material uh, near the top about people kind of demanding evidence for science. Um, and you mentioned uh, podcasts again. And I, you know, I wondered if that was kind of an uh, implicit dig at Joe Rogan without uh, without going after him directly. Um, oh, no, I wasn't because um, I didn't realize how synonymous he was with podcasting yeah. <laughs> until kind of halfway through the tour. And it was really just the idea of um, people who um, decide to start a podcast or YouTube channel because they have a camera or a microphone and they think they can just go yeah. on and and do it. So it was really just the honestly the special is a dig at the death of expertise in America, respect for expertise and also kind of going after amateurs who think that they're experts in things. And I think um, it's funny we're on a podcast right now. And I just say podcasting is, you know, one of the biggest uh, places where that happens, where all these amateurs get a microphone and then they suddenly think that, you know, everyone wants to be a guest on their podcast and all that. I, I'll say that I'm not just saying this because because I'm on this, but like you're a professional writer. <laughs> so I like to think so. Po- <laughs> Yeah, this is an extension of your profession, you know, but there's people who are complete amateurs to anything. And, and hey, there's nothing wrong with starting stuff. I'm just saying you got to know that you're an amateur and like <laughs> work towards getting better, not come out being like, you know, everything is 
you, everyone who's done this is terrible. I'm the I'm the answer to <laughs> I'm the answer to 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 the problems in American media. Yeah, you know? well, it, could, it it could potentially apply to someone like Rogan as well because he is a comedian who then kind of got into the uh, the medical the medical yeah, science yeah. space in a way that that didn't <laughs> yeah, didn't always work out that I mean, well. Yeah, and he's he's been a comic for a while now. He's been he's been doing his podcast for a while now. So at least he's like he's not an amateur podcaster entertainer, you know. Definitely not. Yeah. The the whole idea of anti-vaxxers and that movement is something that you also talked about in your previous special as well before COVID. So it's something that that's clearly been on your mind um even even before all this, right? Yeah. Um I guess I mean the anti-vaxxer movement in America was kind of Pretty, I would say pretty fringy before the pandemic. But you were talking about it with the measles and, you know, that kind of stuff. Bringing back measles? Why not? Why not at this point? How much worse can it get? Let's bring back measles. Every year, America becomes more and more hipster. Starting to bring back organic small batch diseases. Because all these stupid anti-vaccination idiots <laughs> reading some bullshit on the internet, getting brainwashed, not vaccinating their children. Yo, the internet is making people so fucking stupid. <laughs> like, who knew all of human knowledge could make people dumber? <laughs> like, in 50 years, we're going to look at the internet the same way we look at smoking right now. It's going to be like, man, I can't believe 50 years ago, we just let pregnant people use the internet. Yeah, I found it funny back then. I mean, it was, I, a lot of this stuff was just like me, uh, even the from the previous special, was just me laughing at things I thought were funny. You know, even even this one is, yeah, you know, I, didn't, I don't think I went after anyone personally. I went after the idea of people who do this. And so... It's interesting. People read a lot into that, you know. Like even even you just now was like, if I go if I go podcasters are amateurs. They're like, oh, you talking about Joe Rogan? So I was no, I was talking about this podcast who are, who are amateurs. If I go like if I go like um, fuck these d average students who who've never proven themselves academically, but suddenly they they think themselves to be PhD holders. Everyone's is like, you're being woke. You're being woke, woke, woke. I'm like. You know what I mean? Like people read yeah. into well, they want they they want their own political ideas to be put on whatever you're saying. Yeah, right? yeah, they yeah they project into that, and I think one of the fun things about playing with words professionally is that for me anyway is I get so specific about my hate that if you if you if you extrapolate that to your own thing, that's your problem, you know? Because I was very specific about why I said I said I hate these d average students who who think that they are PhD holders now, and then. And then people read into that like you're being you're being left wing or right wing, and I'm like, is that is that left is it is it left wing <laughs> to be like I hate fucking dumb students who now think that they're PhD holders, you know what I mean? Like so anyway, that's part of the fun of it. I I think is like you insult the stupidity of groups without going after the groups um, specifically. You know, I think that's part of the fun because th- I think that's a less hacky way of. You know, because anyone can be like racist are bad, but if you can if you can talk about those racist people specifically without even naming them, I think you know I think that's more fun. You know, it's more interesting to me. Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of comedians now who are complaining about cancel culture. You do something very different in your special. You dare the audience to cancel you, dare the viewers to cancel you, um, which is a really really funny bit. Do it, cancel me. 
cancel me. What are you gonna do? Cancel me so I have to go back to Malaysia? Where I'm a national hero? <laughs> and the currency advantage is very much in my favor? Do it. Free me from this hell. Do it. My, my, my mom lives in Singapore right now. I haven't seen my mom in two years. Cancel me so I can see my mom. I keep getting acting jobs. Cancel me so I can see my mom. Everyone thinks that because I'm on The Daily Show, I'm here to save the world. Yo, I'm not here to save the world, man. I'm here to talk shit, make money, and bounce. That is it. That is it. Did that come out of your own frustrations with the whole, you know, cancel conversation? Yeah, I think it's interesting. A lot of this special came out of what were, I felt were common conversations people were having with me and with comedy in general of like, how can you say anything now? This cancel culture is ruining comedy or even cancel culture in general. And I guess the point of that bit was like that I do in the show is like, there is no cancel culture like if you in i i feel there's no cancel culture like if you commit a, f a crime you go to jail that's not cancel culture that's, that's not, like yeah, that's you, something different that's a felony right like you broke a law but if you're saying like you can't say anything but i'm one of my central one of my arguments in that piece is like there is no you can say anything you know the only difference is are you a professional or are you an amateur if you're a professional you can say anything because you're saying it in a a a professional artistic way if you're an amateur you're gonna you know you're gonna fuck yourself over by trying to be controversial or whatever so um when i did that bit it was the point i was making was um one i was kind of making fun of the you know woke whatever twitter people who who try to cancel everybody it's like well try to cancel me and then the other thing i was making fun of the right wing who think that cancel culture is all powerful and I'm like, it's it's not that there is no real cancel culture as far as I can tell. I've been saying awful stuff. I say awful stuff <laughs> in the special and no one, you know, I'm, I'm, I was trying to illustrate that point that like, yeah, it's it's there's professional comics and then there's amateurs. And and this is what it looks like, you know, uh, hopefully. Yeah. Well, certainly the biggest comedians working often are the ones complaining about cancel culture and then becoming even more famous and successful in the process. Um, and I'm sure you know a lot of these people. Um, do you have these com these conversations with comedian friends about about this stuff? Um, honestly, not not really, because we have better things to talk about. Like and and it's 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 funny, like uh, it, it kind of goes to my point of like if you're not in the business of self-expression. Let's not talk about comedy. You know, comedy seems to be the lightning rod for this, so I understand why comedy's at the forefront of cancel culture, quote unquote, um, debates. But like if you're in the business of self-expression, it's only the people who are not in the business of self-expression who think that this is who think every day about this, who obsess about it, who complain about it, who you know, if you're in the business of self-expression, you just go out and express yourself, you know? And, and, and so we, it, it, I mean, it, it's funny, right? Because you don't want to joke about something that's so inside baseball, right? We, you know, like when you make, when, when, I, when I do comedy, you don't want to be just doing inside baseball jokes about comedy. But at the same time, I felt like this was such a, this topic's so big in the Zed guys. That's why I decided to talk about it in the special, which was like, 
the, the idea that cancel culture is coming after people or, or comics or whomever. Um, like, honestly, the comics I know, like, I don't think they're super, they're not thinking day and night about it. They're thinking about what's the next best joke I can do, you know? Uh, like, I, I think that's the case. I mean, you know, when, when firestorms happen, do people talk about it? Yeah, of course, you know, people talk about it, people, you know, but in general, you know, when I'm at the cellar, I'm, con- I'm not talking to him about, hey, do you think I'll get canceled if this happened? <laughs> Who got canceled and this guy got canceled? And we're like, we're like, no, we're trying to write the next joke, you know? <laughs> um, well, one bit that uh, is, you know, could get you canceled, I suppose, is the uh, the worst race uh, run that you do. Yeah, let's do it right now. Let's figure out which is the worst race right now. Okay? You guys up for it? Yeah. Okay, cool. okay, cool. On three, I want you to shout out which race thing is the worst. <laughs> Right? Okay. No, no, no. Don't worry. No, we'll all do it together. We'll all do it together. I'll join in. Of course, I'll join in. Right? No, don't worry. This is a comedy show. This is a safe space. We ask you to put your phones away for this moment right now. Now's the time to let it out. This is it. Don't don't bottle up and go crazy outside. Let's lay out now. Let the demons out now. All right? Okay. You don't even have to be specific. Okay. Just shout a color. Guys, we all know what the answer is going to be. I was curious because we see you, you know, do it in the special in this one audience. You must have tried that out in in different places. What were some of the different experiences that you had doing that bit in different rooms? That's a that's a good question, man. I went on tour with that bit. We did fifty shows around the world with it. I and I was doing it in New York City to work it out. It it was always like honestly, it becomes like a blur. People will shout stuff. Some people will try to be funny. You know, they'll shout like green or something. You know, um, they'll shout that's, something. That's not very funny, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I said they'll try to be funny and they'll shout something that, you know, um, and it would usually, it usually end with, it would usually end with like a loud kind of, I couldn't hear it on stage, what people are saying. I think kind of, again, I don't want to spoil the joke. So, uh, but sometimes people will say something, um, I mean, whatever you said, it was, it didn't, for me, I had an out, you know, I was prepared for it, but, um, and the, that, you kind of have to have all different, all different things to, cause since it is, you know, crowd work and you have to be ready for anything in a way. Yeah. But, but, um, it generally it, because the point I was trying to make, I, you know, I go on in the bit, so it doesn't really matter what you say. You could say the worst thing. I've had people say someone in DC was like, you know, a Chinese, Chinese, Malaysians are the worst, you know, they would say that to me on stage. And I think they were just trying to, you know, be funny with, you know, try to go after me. Um, yeah, it would, you know, and part, part of the joke is the tension in that joke. So, um, yeah, but, but I would say, yeah, nothing really uh, like people said stuff, you know, but it, I, I think it never went um, off the rails too much. The, the only time it went off the rails was in New York and someone said a race that um, I felt was very personal the way they said it. And then after the gig, I went after them for saying that. I actually said, fuck you for saying that. And then after the show, I realized like, oh, maybe that was their own race. You know, like people shout their own race just to be self-deprecating. So that's why you try your material, right? So you get enough different energy so you know what what it could be you know all the possibilities in your head you know some people would try to jump the gun before i could even finish the big they start shouting i have to and that that would happen a lot where i'd be like guys calm down i know you guys are really excited about this bit but let me 
let me let, let's get some consensus let's do it together you know so people will start shouting before you even got to the point where they were supposed to you know and you have to like calm the audience you be like yo i know you're excited to to to, to participate in this bit let's let's do it together let's do it together you know and then you get them and yeah so that 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 was kind of what was happening with that bit but um because i think the ending for me uh the ending of that joke brought everyone that together so i was very confident doing it you know what i mean i wasn't too worried about things going off the rails too much and turning into something i didn't want it to be you know and uh and again, I did it live so many times in big theaters. I did it at Madison Square Garden. I did it everywhere. And and usually <laughs> at the end, it will bring people together, you know, so. Coming up, Ronnie tells the story of how he got his breakthrough gig on The Daily Show and later shares some uncensored thoughts about his Fox News nemesis, Jesse Waters. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other Daily Show contributors, past and present, like Samantha B., Lewis Black, Jordan Klepper, Roy Wood Jr., and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Ronnie Chang. So I want to go back a little bit and talk about some of the earlier, you know, parts of your career and going all the way back to um, how you started. You know, I think from the outside, it can sometimes feel like someone like you with these two big specials kind of became this great stand up overnight. I know that was not the case for you, and I'm sure it didn't feel like that for you. Um, so how did you get started and, and what has that process been like for you of, you know, getting to this point? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm that big i think i'm still trying my best to write the next joke but um i think uh i i mean i would say i I got pretty lucky with opportunities you know people gave me opportunities um a lot of my peers and seniors and certain gatekeepers 
in 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 the industry in multiple countries would give me a chance um and i like to think i i stepped up when i was giving the chance um i think a lot of it had to do with um being a a voice that um i always felt like i was trying to do the comedy and talk about things that i wanted i never heard anyone talk about so i was trying to do that so i was trying to use the fact that um no one's kind of seen um a, a, a chinese person talk about this in this way as an advantage because my my hope my i i felt like i felt like people wanted to hear my perspective when i was on stage i felt like oh let's see what this guy has to say about anything because no one was used to hearing a chinese man talk about anything so like oh so I felt like I had a little bit of advantage at the start of like oh let's let's see what this guy has to say about it you know um, obviously you still have to deliver but I felt like I I felt like people were at least interested in oh what 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 what's this guy gonna talk about you know him sounding the way he sounds and him looking the way he looks so that was kind of the basis of a lot of um, like that was my little advantage and then from there I tried to make the most of that advantage by saying something original or unique or giving a different perspective on it you know um and and yeah yeah and i mean in terms of big breaks the daily show must have been the biggest um and probably still was in a lot of ways um in terms of reaching a new audience uh in the united states um and you came in with trevor noah he kind of he brought you into the show when he started right yeah yeah absolutely um and so the daily show was the the thing that got me to come to america and uh, it allowed me to come in America. It got my foot in the door in so many ways, not just in America, but in comedy rooms around New York. You know, it got my foot in the door. It gave me a chance to at least audition for spots that led to more stage time, which helps, helped me develop my comedy. It taught me, The Daily Show taught me how to do comedy better. I think in terms of being surrounded by all these talented writers and producers and editors and, um, you know, you learn all these different skill sets at The Daily Show. The Daily Show is like the Harvard Business School of, of comedy in the sense that in the sense that like the degree is important. Um, if you make the analogy of the, the, the certificate being uh, quote unquote fame profile building but the real benefit of working at the daily show isn't isn't the profile or the fame it's the skill sets and the connections you make to people um because you learn improv you learn tv comedy writing you learn uh producing you learn presenting you learn uh editing directing lighting you learn like every aspect of american show business live and filmed is you know in that building and they've been doing it for so many years there's a lot of institutional knowledge so that that thing really you know it, it came to me at right time like i i moved to america when i was 30 uh, exactly 30 years old and i could remember being 30 years old doing stand-up comedy for about um six years uh and i could feel that the jokes i was doing when i was 30 years old were like a different person it was the jokes I wrote when I was in my 20s. But I was already changing as a person um, in terms of personal maturity. And my comedy was also changing. It was I think my comedy was getting better. But I was still doing the jokes from before. And moving to America right at that period, it was like the perfect time. Because when I moved to America, I kind of had to start from scratch anyway. And it kind of forced me to redevelop my act. And so that timing was 
almost perfect in terms of like maturing as a person, maturing as a comedian and being in the best city to, to, to get better at it, you know? And so uh, I, that was, you know, all that stuff is kind of what really helped me out a lot. You know, um, yeah, I, I could talk about this forever because uh, I'm a comedy nerd. I know you are too. I'm trying <laughs> yeah, to let yeah. you. I'm trying to let you get a question in there. But John o John Oliver told me the same thing. He said um, it took him when he moved to America. Um, it took him two years to relearn how to do comedy, and he was he was spot on to the day, right to the day. Two years. I remember two years in when it when it uh, in New York City when it finally started to click a bit for me in terms of like not being the the f f uh, perpetual foreigner comic in New York, where you come on stage, you're like, "Hey, I've been, I'm new to America. Yeah, this is to, weird. You, you, you guys new have to town anymore." Exactly, and and the audience can smell it. The audience can smell it. Like after a year or two living in, in America, they know that they're like, "You're one of us. Like you know better. You know there's there's different flavors of Coca Cola. You know why is that so?" Tell was us something there, we don't know, basically. Yeah. Was there a moment or even something in, you were doing in your material that you felt like that clicked after the two years? Uh, nothing specifically, but just kind of like writing stuff where you're making Americans laugh at American stuff that in a in a way where they they the Americans are going like, yeah, that's spot on. That's that's kind of what clicks where Americans are like, yeah, you. You nailed that. As opposed to like, yeah, that's funny, but tell us something we don't know, you know? Like, um, I'm curious what it's been like for you to watch Trevor Noah's sort of cultural impact grow over the past seven years where, you know, I think when he came in, he was pretty much unknown to Americans. And now he's he's so huge to the point where he's, you know, ending up in feuds with Kanye West and, you know, hosting, <laughs> the, hosting the Grammys and, and all this stuff. I mean, what has it been like for you to sort of watch that, um, you know, closely? Uh, it's been cool. I'm not, I'm not surprised. Uh, he's super talented. He like, every, I, I think it's easy to think that the guy is successful because he got the daily show, but the truth is like, he, you know, it could, it could easily, he makes the daily show, kind of look easy a bit because if it, it could easily have not worked out and with with the daily show despite having the daily show infrastructure and being as talented as he is how many talented people do we know with tv shows that didn't make it right not like there's so many talk shows that don't get a chance like when when john stewart retired everyone tried to jump on the political satire bandwagon right there was like five five six shows that came out and how many of those are left over you know yeah my, my, if, my point if, being only that, a couple yeah yeah my point being that it's harder than it looks you know to do these shows and it takes um a lot of stamina it takes a lot of talent obviously so all this is speaking to him and i've seen him man i've seen him not just at the daily show kill it uh i've seen him we traveled to singapore together and I forced myself on the show because he said he was going to Singapore to do two shows. And I was like, well, I better fuck be that. there. If yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're doing Singapore, there's no fucking way I'm not going to be there. You're, you're going to put me on the show because I, I don't. And, you know, the guy outsells me in Singapore 10 to 1, obviously. But but so we got we got to Singapore and and he had a voice thing because he's overworking his voice. He couldn't talk the whole week. He's, oh, he God. doesn't say a word. Zero. Like he's he's on doctor's order. Silence. Complete silence. So he's using charades, you know, he's writing things down to communicate. So the first time he talks, the whole time we're there, the whole week is at his show. And he comes on and he does 30 minutes on Singapore 
and kills it, right? Just that means the stuff he just came up with about his his observation in Singapore. He comes off stage, he does the next show, different 30 minutes on Singapore. <laughs> reconfigured. So my point is like this dude is the real yeah, deal, you that's know. Legit. He he's he's prolific. Um, he's super funny, he's got great takes, he can do special effects, you know, he's he's the full thing. And so watching him, I'm like I'm still in awe and he makes it look easy because he's so good looking and people think that he is like, how am I going to put it? Like people think that, of course, he got that big. He had the benefit of the Daily Show and whatever. But I'm saying that he's actually in a way kind of underrated because I don't know how many people could have taken what was given to him and made it what he made it. You know what I mean? No, I think a lot of people expected it to not work after because of who Jon Stewart was and how big that show was. And yeah, and and people didn't know who he was. The other uh, Daily Show thing that I feel like we have to touch on, because I know we've talked about this before and you've probably talked about it too much, but the Jesse Waters Chinatown piece, I think, remains probably your most uh, iconic moment on the show. And, you know, he, of course, has only continued to fail upwards uh, since then, (laughs) all the way to primetime, you know, his own primetime show on Fox News and all that. Um, As we're talking, there's, I don't know if you've seen this, there's a clip going around of him admitting on air yesterday that he let the air out of the tires of a younger female colleague's car so that he could give her a ride home. He basically tricked her and then ended up, and he was married at the time and then ended up marrying this woman, divorcing his wife and marrying this woman who who worked uh, under him at Fox. So that was pretty fucked up. Yeah, that's pretty fucking disgusting. As just as an example, but he also delivered one of probably the most racist thing I've ever seen on TV, which was that Bill O'Reilly piece. Um, you know, that, that you uh, responded to. If you want to come at Chinese people, make fun of China's high pollution or the fact that they censor most of the internet, which in this case might actually be a good thing since no person from China will ever have to watch your garbage attempt at comedy. Donald Trump beating up on China at the debate. <laughs> Trump has been beating up on China. How does that make you feel? Hey, asshole, they don't speak English. That's why they're silent. It's easy to make fun of someone when they can't respond. Here, I'll show you. Hey, douchebag, why do you look like a guy who carries around a pack of roofies just in case? (laughs) And why do you look like you have hookers on speed dial? Oh, and follow-up question, is it hard to fit Bill O'Reilly's entire scrotum in your mouth? So I guess, you know, I know you've talked about it a lot before, but I was curious, did did you ever hear from him or hear from anyone at Fox after that came out? Or was there any sort of follow-up to to what happened there? Uh nothing directly. No. I think he's a I think he's a piece of shit. I think he's he looks he he looks and acts like a douchebag. So when when there's smoke, I think there's fire. I mean, I didn't even know about the thing you just told me, but I think he consistently acts like a like a douche. I think if he like I feel like if he I would have more respect for him if he actually had his point of view and he he gave it irrespective of who was in political power. But to me, he always sounds like he's he's just always on the side of, you know, like it's, it's not that he has a strong integrity about his point of view. He's just like, who's the Republican in power? I'm going to defend whatever they say. And, you know, he, like, he never criticizes his own team is what I'm saying. Right. That, that's, I think that's my biggest problem with what he does um, as a quote-unquote journalist is that he doesn't criticize his own team. And so 
he lacks integrity to me in that sense, you know. Um, but as for the day, to answer your question, again, just to elaborate on it, like he doesn't, uh, it's not like he's thinking objectively. I think he's, he's trying to push. And some of it is, unfortunately, like he's trying to push that team's uh, uh, like agenda. Being, yeah, yeah be, like being a cheerleader for that team and not actually objectively having a truthful point of view. And unfortunately, the other aspect of it is that he's just saying stuff to get controversy, to get clicks, to get, you know, which... Uh, so my response to that is always like I try to ignore it because I know you f- you're kind of feeding the fire if you get into this game. Uh, but to answer your question, no, I, they never contacted me directly. I don't didn't expect them to. I think he I think he was suspended after that. You know, all those years ago, I think he actually took leave or something. I think he apologized. Yeah, actually. went on one of those va- so. one on one of those vacations that people take when they uh, <laughs> when they do something wrong. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think he went away for a bit, and as you said, continued to fail upwards. <laughs> but but how much blame do you feel like he and Fox and you know also Trump obviously deserve for all of these you know the rise in specifically anti Asian attacks that have happened you know over the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think it helps. Uh, I think they're kind of like um, uh, when, when you're. When you're when you're kind of fanning the flames of controversy as people in actual decision making positions is never good, you know. I mean, there's this kind of xenophobic undertones with everything they say, right? So regardless of race, it, it, as in even if you want Asian any race, there's this kind of undertones, and they're all very. They're all very loyally about it, right? They all they will never come out and say it, but the undertones are all there. And if you, if you're kind of living day to day in America, you can feel the chaos a bit, you know. And and but every but you know then online you can people will spend days or weeks or whatever it is kind of arguing about what they actually meant and you know, the specifics of it, you know. So it definitely didn't help. Let's put it that way. There, you have a moment in your new special where you kind of challenge other comics to close their hour with jokes about uh, anti-Asian hate crimes. Um, but you actually do have some experience with that. Oh, I wasn't challenging other comics, actually. I was, try- I was trying to challenge, like, amateurs. If they think, oh, you know, amateurs, if they're asking yeah. me to... Amateurs were asking me to do something. Like, you should, you should talk about this. I'm like, you talk about it. You know, don't tell me what to do. You go do it. <laughs> Um, but then you kind of bring that around. But do you uh, do, do you do you do have some you know real life experience with this stuff? I mean, in terms of uh, you know facing those those kinds of um... well, the story at the end was true. I got choked in New York City. I don't think it was racial. <laughs> it could have been anything. I was walking on the street in Manhattan, looking around, and out of nowhere, this woman walks right up to me grabs me on the throat and just starts squeezing. So like I throw her off and then she squares up. And then I look at her and I just walk away. And that's like a normal interaction in New York. Neither of us said a word. The entire time we didn't even make a sound. We didn't review each other. Because we both knew what was going on. We both knew what that whole thing was about. <laughs> I looked at her and I was like, oh, you crazy. <laughs> 
But I, I mean, in major cities, in American cities, I'm, I'm not listening to music walking down the street. You know, I got my head on a swivel. I'm looking around. Stand up comedy at, is at night. A lot of the times, you're running around at night, so you know there's an element of there's an element of danger more so than um, uh, before the pandemic or before this rise of Asian hatred. You know, so. Um, but if you ask me personally, um, uh, I'm very thankful. I haven't been uh, attacked on the street yet or, or yeah. So before we end here, we, the last segment on the show is called the first laugh. And I'm going to ask you some questions about some firsts in your, uh, in your life and career, uh, starting with all the way back. Do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up? Wow. The first piece of comedy. Yeah, it, it was um, it was watching Seinfeld in nineteen ninety one or ninety two in Manchester, New Hampshire, with my parents. Uh, they went to college and they brought us along, and I was probably five years old, six years old, and watching Seinfeld and watching Seinfeld and him doing the stand up. Yeah, uh, the little stand-up bits. The interstitials. Yeah. yeah. The interstitials, yeah. And going like, man, that's really cool. Like, what is that? That's You can just do that? Like, that's a job? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's, mm. a, that's a good example of stand-up that, that probably does, uh, you know, appeal to everybody in a way. Yeah, that yeah. It's very and universal. I, I, thought, I thought it was really cool. He was doing, yeah. And I can't remember the bit, though, unfortunately. Yeah. But I remember yeah, laughing okay. at that. Um, do you remember uh, the first time that you knew you were funny? Damn, I still, I'm still trying to figure still, it out. Still, so still the first time, yeah, I don't know, man. First time, I don't know. Or I, that you, that uh, you had the ability to make other people laugh, um, either growing I think, up. I think or... doing, I, I think doing presentations in in school in Singapore, in Singapore, whenever there was a there was a presentation, um, I kind of knew like I could, I was, I would be pretty good at it. Um, so doing, you know, whatever the presentation topic was, whatever it was, I would, I just do it and. Um, uh, and that's when I kind of knew like, oh, you could, people would, re- could, re- you could make people, I knew I could make people respond to the stuff that I thought was funny. Yeah. Um, what about the first time you actually performed standup on stage? Uh, where were you? What was the, what was the venue like? How did it go? I have video of it. It's the, I still have video of it. Yeah. The first standup gig I ever did was at my, at university at Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia, and it was the campus comedy competition. And uh, I wrote material for two weeks, and then I had to do like five minutes. And um, it, yeah, actually, I did really well. I actually won the competition. Um, so I, I had a it's really en- good it's first encouraging. gig. <laughs> yeah, I had a really good first gig. Do you remember the first joke or one of the first jokes that you wrote that really worked every time and you could you could keep coming back to that you felt like you finally you know had something that you that was working yeah i mean that that comedy competition that i won that five minutes was the basis of my next year of comedy and it 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 became like uh it it was something that got me into like a national uh comedy competition it got me on the radar of uh the melbourne comedy festival and it gave me a lot more opportunity so that was the first time writing material and being like, oh, this is how you do this. You got to get something that's super funny that's consistently, that works all the time, you know. But like uh, like most comics who love comedy, you even though it works all the time, you're still like, damn, this sucks, you know. I, yeah. I got to come with something better. <laughs> so so as much as I respected it for its practical effects, I, I, I was very much like, um, damn, I just, you know, 
this sucks. Like I need to, I was always <laughs> like, this, this kind of sucks. Like these people are laughing. Like you, you fooled them this time, but why don't you come with something that's actually really good? You know, I still feel <laughs> that way. Yeah. I was going to say, do you every time you feel like you're, by the time you're done shooting something, do you feel like it sucks? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, every, every, every comic, you know, and the problem with the special, which I really appreciate you liking it, um, uh, is that it's never as good as it is live, you know? And that goes back to what I say about people aren't actually fans of comedy because like, um, the live is where it's the most fun and most humans will not see you live. Yeah, most of them will probably true, see yeah. you a recording and, and so you miss out a lot on the live experience. That's definitely you know? true. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So live for me. Going back to the daily show, what was the first field piece that you got sent out on and what was that experience like? Cause I feel like that's a very unique uh, process. The first field piece. Uh, it's, um, the first field piece was, uh, I did something about voting machines, very mm -hmm. daily show. Yeah, very relevant it was about, now too, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, go figure, eh? I, the first field piece was, uh, about broken voting machines and, and, um, uh, I remember, um, yeah, just watching a lot of raw footage of other correspondents during field pieces and Colbert wrote this email that he sent to, he sent to, um, Colbert wrote down this, Colbert had a list of, of commandments for doing field pieces, like how to do it. I've and heard he about this, he, yeah. Yeah, he told it to, um, uh, man, who, who, who transcribed it? Maybe Jason Jones transcribed it, but then Jason sent it to, to Klepper, who sent it to me. And um, uh, so you can see the email chain. I still yeah, have it. Like the great. email chain, people sent it. Yeah, and it was a list of like, do's and don'ts very simple do's and don'ts during a um a field piece interview and so uh when i'll do that that, that field piece is, is you can still go watch it if you want it's a uh, voting machines i also went to in the field piece i, sw I swore in hokkien uh in in that chinese dialect uh i was saying some awful things and it was pretty funny because i think at that time comedy central didn't care if you want saying in English, they didn't care what you're saying. But now, like when I do it, if I speak in Chinese now, the, the lawyers will ask me to translate. But that first field piece, you got no away with it. I, yeah. yeah, I was saying awful. I was saying things about people's moms, and you know, it was, <laughs> that's hilarious. But um, no, nobody noticed. Yeah, that's how much Asian representation has changed. <laughs> Whoa, hang on. What is this? That is a uh, 56k dial-up modem. Even my grandmother back in Malaysia would look at this and go, what the f Do you have a story or memory about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes? Yes. Uh, so com my comedy hero, one day I get a Facebook message on my Facebook page <laughs> from an account that says Bill Burr and the profile picture is a car. <laughs> and and the message is, hey, Ronnie, Bill Burr here. I just wanted to say, um, really love your, I saw your set on Just for Laughs. It was super funny. Hopefully you can work again someday, Bill. And I'm like, man, this is out of control. Like, this is amazing. What a cool message to send. And then my second thought was like, ah, oh, it's probably fake. And I was going to tell that person go fuck himself but then then i was like oh, you know what like if it is bill you know if it's not bill i can live with being made a fool of but if it is bill i can't live with telling bill burr to go fuck himself yeah. so i just oh. said oh hey bill thanks so much that's very kind of you to say um i'm a huge fan of yours um 
I don't know if we'll ever see each other because I, I'm in Australia, but hopefully we'll meet one day soon. Yeah, thanks again. And then he replied back like, hey, I'm touring Australia next year. I hope you can be on the show. And I'm like, yeah, of course. And then like a year goes by, like I literally hear nothing else about it for a year. And, and no one can confirm whether this is Bill Burr's actual account because he's like, there's no mutual friends, anything. I have no contact in America. Anyway, so um, like, you know, not like, 11 months later, he, I get this uh, message. Uh, I think it was from him of like, hey, yeah, he, he's tour, he announced his tour in Australia. And I think I just say like, uh, I, I messaged him back like, oh, hey, Bill, see you're going to be Australia. You know, yeah, hopefully I can still be on the shows. If not, I totally understand. Don't worry about it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll see you there. Just be here at this time. <laughs> and then I'm like, this is, I'm definitely going to get murdered. Now. Like, it's totally a scam. You still have no and idea then, if it's real. I no idea if it's real. And then I show up to the theater and I get into the green room. And then he comes in the door. And <laughs> I, until he comes in the door, I still don't believe that it's going to be him. That's and then, great. you know, he shakes my hand. It was, it was great. And he's been super cool to me ever since. You know, he, he produced my special, his company and him. He's the EP on the special. And, He's always been super cool, and he's a real comics comic, you know. And you, 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 you learn a lot from him just, just how he conducts himself in his business, and how he doesn't, he he understands he he understands that internet controversy is is very fleeting, and so he'll he'll he has you know, he, he has really to, good perspective on that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, know, um, yeah, I feel like if you had told him to go fuck himself, he probably would have thought that was funny too, and it would have worked out anyway. But I don't uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, but. So finally, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out um, any other uh, comedians or comedy that's really making them laugh right now. So, is there anyone you want to shout out or, or shows oh, you've man. seen or, or anything? So many. Uh, um, uh, I, I think. Um, there's so many Mateo Lane always makes me laugh um, I think Rosebud is killing it right now yeah Rosebud Baker He's, yeah, yeah Rosebud so Baker good. is always super funny um, I think Sam Morrill very prolific always funny yeah speaking of rooftops yeah <laughs> yeah he just does uh, his special rooftop special um, there's some other guys Dino Achi always makes me laugh I don't know if you know this dude he's American lives in Vancouver right now also very prolific releases a lot of clips all the time I think he's super funny honestly like damn like any like it if you if you have a comedy if you're listening anyone listening to this if there's a comedy club in your in your city just go watch the headliner man whoever is there because that gonna headliner be yeah. is gonna be good man they're, they're, they're gonna be good especially and this is kind of like the point I was trying to make in the special. It's like if you if you sit at home and you watch comedy clips on your phone, it's very easy to not be in the right state of mind to for, for stand-up comedy. You might even think comedy sucks. But if you go for a live event, the power dynamics change completely in a good way. You know, you'll get more out of it is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, it, will, will, will you like every single comic? Probably not. But I'm just saying that if you go for a live event, you'll start to understand what it's about, the rhythm of it. Like, you're just there for a fun time. If you're sitting at home judging comedy clips, you know what I mean? It's, and you're, like, in your office under fluorescent lights. It's, like, it's, you're just not in the mood. You need to be, like, in the mood for comedy, you know? Like, it's not just something that... It's not, like, it's not like uh, something that... Uh, like, music where they can change 
change your opinion on the spot. You know, you need to be set up. You need to be the context needs to be right. The venue needs to be right. So, uh, you ask me which comics I like. Honestly, I I would say I haven't met a comic I don't like. You know, <laughs> yeah. really, really. I mean, there's so many killers. You know, for me, it's trying to keep up with these guys. You know, they're so funny. Well, you've ins- you've inspired me to go watch more live comedy as well. So. No, thanks for appreciating it. Yeah, thanks for appreciating comedy. I, I only speak to. It's easier to talk to you because you're a real comedy fan, so you get <laughs> thanks, it. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Matt. All right, I want to thank Ronnie Chang again for taking so much time to talk with me for this episode, and for not taking any of his many frustrations out on me. His new special, Speakeasy, is streaming now on Netflix, and we'll put a link to get tickets to his multiple shows at the Netflix is a Joke Fest in the description for this episode as well. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.